The Lord be with you. <laughs> Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you are the faithful few. Um, I think the biblical term for it is the elect. And um, God bless you for persevering today. I feel like we ought to take a deviation from the Gospel of Matthew and study the book of Genesis and Noah's flood. The weather is just right, right in line with that lesson. Um, we can do uh, two things today. We do have a, a smaller crowd today, and um, we can either continue on with the the book of Matthew, um, because you came out, and that's what you came out for, um, or we can do a Q&A or something like that if you'd prefer to wait and just press on with the Gospel of Matthew. Is that, is that your intention? All right, then that's what we'll do. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 19. The last time we were together, and we took a break last week because I had some diocesan business to attend to, so we are coming back after a small break. But the last time we were together, we looked at the first part of Matthew chapter 19, which is Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. We said this is a touchy subject, particularly in our culture. But we said that the emphasis here is really on the importance of marriage. It's not as though Jesus is simply being hard on divorce so much as he's being high on marriage. And the problem for the Pharisees was that they were looking for reasons to get a divorce, and Jesus was saying it should have been just the opposite they should have been looking for reasons to stay in the marriage. So Jesus takes their ideas and he turns them on their head. Well, we pick up the narrative today, chapter 19, beginning at verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, 
See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for My name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So we come to this familiar story. It's oftentimes referred to as the story of the rich young man or the rich young ruler. One of the first things that strikes me, at least, when I read through Matthew's gospel at this point, this story of the coming of the little children and the coming of the rich young man, is that I'm struck by the fact that how people were drawn to Jesus. All sorts and conditions of men and women were drawn to Jesus. Uh, The Lord was an extraordinary individual. I sometimes think that our pictures of Jesus and artwork make him sort of appear sort of Casper Milktoast almost, effeminate almost. Not the kind of person that you would find to be particularly attractive. Now, that's of course in the eye of the artist. But when you read through the Gospels, what you find is that Jesus was a very attractive personality. Large numbers of crowds followed him. We know, we've already seen here in Galilee, that there were crowds as many as 5,000 men. And that doesn't count women and children who followed Jesus to hear his teaching. We know that people like Peter and Andrew, James and John, these rough-hewn fishermen were attracted to Jesus. So you have crowds of people, you have the fishermen, you have the religious leaders. Even those who were opposed to Jesus and fiercely jealous of Jesus, nevertheless were attracted to Jesus. That was the case with Nicodemus. You're going to hear about him in church on Sunday because that's the gospel lesson, John chapter 3. It's the story of Nicodemus. Here's Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. We know the Pharisees plotted against Jesus. They were always looking for an opportunity to discredit him. And yet here's Nicodemus coming covertly under the cover of darkness to Jesus because he saw in Jesus something attractive, something that Jesus had that was lacking in his own life, and he was drawn to Jesus. So even Jesus' opponents couldn't help but be attracted to him. And here we have this wonderful picture in this today's lesson of parents bringing their children to Jesus. There was something about Jesus that even little children were attracted to him. So all sorts and conditions came to Jesus. It's the first thing to notice. But what you also have to notice is that while many people were initially attracted to Jesus, not many people stayed with Jesus. Sooner or later, the luster would wear off. Sooner or later, Jesus would say or do something that they found offensive, and they would fall away. It's often that way today. There are still many people that are initially attracted to spiritual things, attracted to God, attracted to the Scriptures, but then when they begin to get deep into these things and begin to understand what the cost of discipleship is, and there is a cost associated with it, I would argue that the cost is worth paying, but nevertheless, there is a cost associated with discipleship. Many people, when they discover what that cost is, they fall away. The crowds, we know, fell away from Jesus Let me show you how that happened. Keep your finger there in Matthew for a moment and turn to John for just a moment. John chapter 6. 
This is John's version of the feeding of the 5,000. And we're told that after Jesus had performed this extraordinary miracle, fed the people with five loaves of bread and two small fish, he then crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The people were so enthralled with what he had done that they followed him to the other side. And when Jesus saw them, verse 35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So that's what Jesus says to the crowds. But if you skip ahead, you read in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, the word that is translated there as hard is an interesting word. It's the word scleros, from which we get the term scleroderma. It's a medical condition which involves the hardening of the skin and the organs of the body. What that means is that they didn't find it hard to understand. They found what Jesus had to say hard to accept. Jesus was saying, don't work for that bread which I've given you out there in the wilderness, that, that, that bread that satisfies you for a brief period of time. Search for the true bread that satisfies for eternity, which I alone can give you. Whatever you're searching for, whatever you're longing for, Jesus said, I alone can provide it for you. And the people said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And look at verse 66. And after this, many of his disciples... These are not just casual onlookers. These are people that have been following him up to this point. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, that initial luster wore off. At which point Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. So there were many people who were initially attracted to Jesus, but then they fell away. We certainly see that with the religious leaders. They began to plot against Jesus. Initially, they were very much enthused with Jesus, but they fell away as well. Well, we come today in Matthew chapter 19 to another individual who was attracted to Jesus. An individual who came to him but an individual who found Jesus' words, like the crowds there in John's gospel, hard to accept, so hard to accept, in fact, that he would turn back and follow Jesus no more. This is the only individual that we find mentioned in the scriptures who comes to Jesus and turns away and ultimately is not saved. Now, there were others, but this is the only individual case. It's the only case in which we have one person coming to Jesus in earnest, asking a question. Now, we have the crowds coming, hearing Jesus in mass, and then sort of falling away. But this is the only example in all of Scripture where you have an individual coming to Jesus, asking the questions, getting the answers, and then not in mass, but as an individual turning and walking away. It's one of the most tragic stories in all Scripture, and yet it's a story that is so important for us because it's about a man who was wealthy. It was a man who had possessions. It was a man who was propertyed. It's the story of 21st century Americans today. Now, you may not think of yourself as a particularly wealthy person, but I've said this before, and you need to understand that you are wealthy. 
You are affluent people. Compared to the vast majority of the world's population, we are in the very small percentage of the most well-to-do. And so what Jesus has to say here about the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom of God is something that we need to hear. So let's take a look at this man. He's an impressive figure. The disciples, at least, were impressed by him because you'll notice when you get to the end of the story, Peter turns to Jesus and he said, Lord, if he can't be saved, what hope is there for the rest of us? So he's an impressive figure. Who is he? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that he was wealthy. He was an affluent man. Luke's gospel in chapter 18 describes him as a ruler, a ruler of the Jews. This would have been a ruler of the synagogue. Uh, This would have been a high-ranking official, which was interesting because we're also going to see that he was, in addition to all of these other things, young. Matthew tells us that he was young. The other Gospels don't mention that, but Matthew tells us that he was young. But he was young, and yet he was a respected individual. He was property, but he was a ruler. He was a leader in the synagogue. Uh, The ruler of the synagogue was responsible for the day-to-day operation of the synagogue. He would be the equivalent, or closest to it as we can possibly get, to a senior warden All right, on the vestry. He's responsible for seeing that things go well. He picks out the people who read the lessons on Sunday, and he actually had the authority to excommunicate somebody from the synagogue if they were guilty of some notorious sin. So it's a position of great responsibility, hardly ever thrust upon somebody who was a youth. So this man is an impressive man. By the standards of even our day, he has so much going for him. Wealthy, influential, Young, and here's something else that's impressive about this young man. He is in earnest. In spite of everything that he has, he nevertheless recognizes that it's not enough. There is some vacuum in his life that he longs to have filled, and he doesn't know how to do it, and so he comes to Jesus. And when I say he comes in earnest, it's because he comes to Jesus in a posture of humility. He comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher. He acknowledges Jesus as one having authority. In Mark's version of the story, he not only comes to Jesus, he actually bends the knee and bows in the dirt before Jesus. Now that's an amazing posture. As I said, it's a posture of humility. He has a teachable spirit. That's one of the most important things in the Christian life is to have a teachable spirit to be willing to learn, to acknowledge the fact that you don't have all the answers. And this young man acknowledges that. So he's wealthy, he's a ruler, he's young, he's in earnest. He comes to Jesus. And he's concerned with the things that really matter. He's concerned for his soul. You know, many young people are not concerned for their soul. Let's just go ahead and admit it. Many of us, when we were young, We're not concerned for our souls. It's only as you get older and you get closer to the prospect of death and you realize that these bodies are not going to go on forever that you begin to oftentimes think about things. But when you're young, you think you are what? Invincible. I saw a meme somebody sent to me. The number one cause of injury among old men 
is thinking that they are still young men. There's some truth in that, isn't it? But when you're young, you just think you're invincible. You can do it all. And what's more, you oftentimes think to yourself, there is still time. There's still time to get serious about spiritual things, but you're having too much fun right now. Read St. Augustine's Confessions sometimes. St. Augustine, of course, was probably the greatest theological mind since the time of the Apostle Paul. And if you read his Confessions, and of course Augustine wrote great theology, but his Confessions are wonderful reading. And one of my favorite lines in that, and Augustine was a young man. He came from a wealthy, affluent, influential family, um, and he was a handsome young man. So he was a bit of a playboy in his own day. And his mother had been praying for his conversion. She'd been praying for his life, and he knew enough about Christianity to know that he needed to reform himself. He needed to change. And he writes in his confessions, which are basically like a diary, he writes, O oh Lord, make me chaste, dot, 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 but not yet. <laughs> and when you're young, you think you have the time, don't you? What's fascinating about this man is that he doesn't wait until he's old to begin to think about these things. He recognizes that life is a fragile thing. We're only one breath away from the judgment. And so he comes to Jesus in a posture of humility, bowing the knee, asking Jesus what he must do in order to have eternal life. As I said, he is an impressive young man. And Jesus loved him. And the disciples were awed by him. He comes in verse 16 which, as I said, is the most important part. It is the critical question. What must I do to have eternal life? Sooner or later, every single one of us is confronted with that question. What do I have to do with eternal life? If you believe that this life is not all there is, if you believe that there is a God, if you believe in the immortal soul, then sooner or later you have to come to terms with that question. Because nobody's getting out of here alive. I, I said last night at the Wednesday service, I think this is one of the reasons there's so much anxiety about this coronavirus. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we need to take the necessary precautions, and there's a great deal that we do not understand. But the reality is that it seems in the minds of many people as though this is the bubonic plague, as though this is going to be the end of the world as we know it. Why all of this anxiety? It's interesting. I had a conversation with John Dixon when he was here, and he was telling me about the, the attitude of people in Australia as a result of those huge bushfires that took place down there. Now, understand, Australia is a very secular country. They're about a decade ahead of us in terms of their secularism. So it's a very secular country. And yet, he said, they were seeing an influx of people coming back to the church and people beginning to talk about about the apocalypse, the end of the world, because of these bushfires which were burning out of control, the likes of which they had never seen in Australia in a century or more. Now, what's fascinating to me about that is that they're concerned about the apocalypse, they're beginning to ask the questions, and yet the crisis was only in Australia. It wasn't anywhere else. But it was directly affecting them. 
But when you've got something like the coronavirus, which is all over the world, and it's in Italy, and it's in all of these other places, people begin to get anxious. And the problem is this. When you push God out of the scene, which is exactly what has happened in Western culture, then you begin to cling tenaciously to this life because you think this life is all there is. And so you panic. You panic. You're willing to pay $150 for a small bottle of Purell on Amazon. (laughs) Inevitably, that is what happens, you see. Oftentimes, we don't face the grace questions of life until we think that our mortality is threatened. But we ought to be asking these questions from the moment we can begin to think. Because as I've said so many times before, nobody's getting out of here alive. Sooner or later, we all have an inevitable appointment with the grave. The young man knew that, and so he came and he asked the question, what do I got to do? inherit eternal life. I know that this life is not going to last forever, so what do I need to do? What is required of me that I might have eternal life? That phrase, eternal life, is found no less than 50 times throughout the Scriptures. So it's an important question. People asking, what must I do? What is required in order to inherit eternal life? What is interesting, however, is that in the scriptures, when that phrase eternal life is being talked about, what's being referred to is not quantity. When we think of eternal life, we think of ongoing life, never-ending life. But that's not what the scripture means by eternal life. It involves that, yes, but that's not the essence of it. The essence of eternal life, biblically speaking, is not so much quantity as it is quality. It's like the Hebrew word shalom. We translate that as peace. When we think of peace, what do we think of? An absence of conflict. That's what peace is. I don't have any conflict in my life. Nobody's fighting with me or with each other. There's peace. That's not what the Jews meant by peace. It involved an absence of conflict, but it was so much more than that. When you say to a Jewish person, shalom, which is a greeting, what you're really saying to them is, May you have peace in every respect, peace of mind, peace of heart. It's what we Christians call the peace of God which passes human understanding. The world can't understand it. The world can't grasp it. What we can, because we have experienced it. So that term eternal life is not just about never-ending life. Uh, The Greeks and the Romans, to some degree, have a story. It's the story of the goddess Aurora, or Eos, who was the goddess of the dawn. And she fell in love with a mortal. His name was Tithonus or Tithonus. And uh, when she fell in love with him, she asked Zeus to grant her a request. And he said he would grant her whatever she wanted. And she asked that her lover, her mortal lover, never die. She, of course, was a goddess, so she couldn't. So she asked that her lover would never die. And Zeus granted her request. But she failed to ask that he never grow old. You know, that's the way it always is with those gods and goddesses. They're very fickle. And so it sounds great. And he is granted eternal life in the sense that the life never ends. But he spends eternity aging and becoming more and more decrepit to the point 
or he becomes so repugnant to Aurora that according to one story, she turns him into a cicada. See, when the world thinks of eternal life, that's what we think of. We think of what? Just life that goes on forever, which is great if this life is wonderful. But if this life is not always so wonderful, if you're in pain and you're in agony for all eternity, you are praying for eternal life to end. That's not what the Bible means by eternal life. It means the full life, the contented life, the life of peace. And when this young man came to Jesus asking, what must I do to have eternal life? That's what he wanted to know. And truth be known, that's what we're all searching for. Every single person in the world, whether they want to admit it or not, or they would frame it in these terms, we are all looking for that kind of life. We are looking for contentment. We are looking for serenity. Truth be known, that's why Nicodemus came to Jesus. Nicodemus, as you'll hear me say on Sunday in the sermon, had everything that this world says should have made him happy, complete, and content. But he wasn't. He saw in this itinerant rabbi who'd never been to any rabbinical academy, who'd never been formally licensed to preach, he saw in Jesus Christ something that he lacked. And he was willing to risk everything, his reputation, his name, everything, to come and find out what it was. That's this young man coming to Jesus Christ and asking, what must I do to have that life? Well, because he asks the question in a very particular way, he came up and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus answers the question in terms of deeds. What must you do to have eternal life? Well, Jesus says, I'll tell you. He says, you've got to keep the commandments. That's what you've got to do in order to have eternal life. And the man replies, which ones? And Jesus says, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to Jesus, what? All these I have kept. Now, sometimes we listen to that and we say to ourselves, who does he think he is? I mean, who among us has kept all those commandments? But here's the point. I think he really did believe that he had kept them. I don't think that this is just a man being proud. I think he really had believed that. Let's be honest. He's an impressive figure. Even the disciples are impressed with him. The synagogue elders were so impressed with him that they voted him to be their leader. I think that this man, from a worldly point of view was a moral, upright, upstanding pillar of the community. And you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say to him, no, you haven't. Instead, Jesus says, all right, well, if you've kept all of those things, this is though the Lord gives him the benefit of the doubt. He says, if you have kept all of these commandments, then there's only one thing that you need to do. You'll notice that when Jesus gives the Ten Commandments to this young man, he doesn't give them in the right order. He skips around a bit. But now he comes back, really, 
to what is the first and foundational of all the commandments. He said there's only one thing that you need to do then. If you would be perfect, if there's something that you want to do to inherit eternal life, then here's what you must do. Go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What's the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before him. Jesus is saying, well, if you've honored your father and your mother and kept all of those other commandments, well, there's only one commandment that you really need to concentrate on. Here's what you do. Go and sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor and come follow me because there is still one problem in your life. There is still one God before the true God, and those are your possessions. So if you want to do something to inherit eternal life, here's what you really need to do. And when the man hears that, like those people in John chapter 6 who said, this is a hard saying, who can accept it? And many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. What happens here? Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now what you'll notice is that verse 22 leads right into Jesus then speaking to the disciples in verse 23. And I point that out for the simple reason that this is not how we want the story to end and it's not how we would expect the story to end. At this point, when the young man who's so impressive so genuine, so in earnest, realizes what is required of him, we're told he is sorrowful, he's downcast, he's discouraged, and he turns and he walks away, at which point we would expect Jesus to run after him and say, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, come on back. Come on back, let's talk this out a little bit. You know, he doesn't want to lose this young man. That's what we would do, that's what we would expect someone to do. All right, you would expect Jesus to say, all right, you don't have to sell everything. Let's, let's just, it's what, it's what the pastor says, let's just work toward the tithe. You don't have to give everything, but you know, let's give a little bit. You know, sort of loosen your grip on, on your things. Let, let's be a little more charitable in our giving. That's what we expect Jesus to do, but Jesus doesn't do it. In fact, you read the other synoptics and we're told Jesus loved him, but let him him go. That's not how we expect the story to end. For Jesus to love somebody, but ultimately to let them go. But that's what he does with this young man. God loves us enough to give us the ability to choose. And this young man chose to follow his goods. Jesus loved him, but he let him go. And there is no more mention of this rich young man anywhere else in Scripture. Now, is it possible that he did eventually come to his senses, give everything away, and come and follow Jesus? Perhaps, but we're coming very close to the end of this narrative, and there's no mention of him again. So it may be safe to conclude that here was a young man who suddenly asked a question got an honest answer and realized what it would involve, and it involved too much, and so he left Jesus, filled with sorrow, 
but perhaps was lost for all eternity. Listen, Jesus is going to tell us what we need to do. And one thing is very clear. If we are going to follow him, there can be no other idol in your life. What's the idol in your life? When we think of idols, we generally think of idols in antiquity. We think of people who worshipped a golden calf or images of one of the pagan deities. But as the Bible understands it, an idol, my friends, is anything at all that takes a higher priority in your life than God. doesn't matter what it is. Most of the time, the idols in our lives are not things that are necessarily bad. They are just things that are a higher priority. Sometimes they can be very good things. Your spouse can be an idol in your life. Your children can be an idol in your life. Your career can be an idol in your life. It's not always material possessions. It was for this young man, but the disciples had other problems. What was the idol for Peter and James and John? It's what this second part of Matthew is all about. It's their desire to be great, wasn't it? They wanted to be great in the kingdom, one to sit at his right hand and one at his left when he came into his kingdom. That was the idol that they wanted. I don't care about the money. I just want the power. Because if you got the power, what happens? Well, the money and everything else comes along with it. What's the idol in your life? Because we all have them. John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Jesus said this. He said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what? It's what comes out of a man. Our hearts, Calvin said, are idol factories. Every one of us from his mother womb is an expert in inventing idols. You ever thought of yourself in that way? As an idol factory? Now let me just say a word about money. That was the problem for this rich young man. It wasn't necessarily the problem for the disciples, in large measure because they didn't have any. But the reason I need to say a word about money today is because money is an issue for us. I mean, you do realize how affluent we are. There is nothing that you and I need that cannot be provided for us. Isn't that true? I mean, if, if you're hungry... You can go to a place like Chick-fil-A. You can go to McDonald's. You can go to a nice restaurant. You can go to the grocery store. There's hardly anything that you and I need that is not conveniently available to us. Now, that wasn't always the truth in history. That was not always the case. Most people lived on the margin in history. Penn Haygood sitting in the back there. She's an historian. She can tell you all about it. Most people lived hand-to-mouth. The average lifespan in Jesus' day was about 36. So Jesus was at the end of the average lifespan, even at the time that he was crucified. We say there is a green hill far away where outside the city wall where the young prince of glory died. Well, he was young, at least by our standards, but by the standards of his own day, he was coming to the end of his life because most people did not live that long. Many women died in childbirth. It was a hard life. You know why the Bible never mentions a vacation? Because nobody in the ancient world had the luxury of taking one. You worked seven days a week, 
as long as it took just to survive. So we are an affluent people, the likes of which the world has never seen before. It's amazing to me that I see people on the street corner begging for cash, and they've got a cell phone in their hand. That is the world in which you and I live. Even the most destitute among us are better off than the vast majority of people throughout the history of the world. It's just the way it is. And so Jesus' words to this rich young ruler are words that we need to pay attention to. Now, let me just say, wealth is not a sin. So exhale for a minute. (laughs) Wealth is not a sin. Wealth is an economic state. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice is that throughout biblical history, particularly in the Old Testament, some of the greatest followers of God were wealthy, propertied people. Abraham had flocks and herds galore. King David, Solomon, had wealth beyond imagination. All of these things were blessings from the Lord. That's the way they were seen. God had blessed them. So you need to understand that wealth is an economic state. It is not a sin. You can't automatically assume that because somebody is wealthy, that means that they're worse off, spiritually speaking, than us. There can be a reverse prejudice here. We have to guard against that. And furthermore, you might say, well, I don't envy the rich because I don't have any money. You can still envy the rich if you desire to be like them. Wealth can still have a grip on your life, even if you are not as well off as Bill Gates. Nevertheless, Jesus makes it very clear that well, why well, while wealth is a near economic state, not a sin, it nevertheless is a liability. Now, why is wealth a spiritual liability? Well, the primary reason, not the only reason, but the primary reason is that we rely on wealth for our security. We rely on wealth for our peace of mind. We rely on wealth for that shalom which God alone can provide. And let me give you a perfect example of this. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Luke chapter 12. Jesus provides us with a wonderful story that makes this point very clear. In Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, Jesus is teaching. He's in the midst of a class, as it were, and someone in the crowd interrupts him and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I can't tell you the number of families that I have seen over the course of my ministry who have been divided over money and over inheritance. I mean, they will fight tooth and nail over that. So just remember that if you're leaving a lot of money to your children. If you want there to be peace at home, you might want to just think about it a little more. But that was the case here. This man comes up to Jesus, interrupts the teacher in the midst of his instruction, and says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, take care 
Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus talked more about money in the New Testament than almost any other subject. You know what the other subject was that Jesus talked about so much? Brace yourself. Hell. Now when we think of Jesus, we think of the God of the New Testament being the God of love and the God who's revealed in the Old Testament being a God of what? Judgment. I want you to know there is more reference to God's love in the Old Testament than there is to his judgment. And Jesus talks more about hell and judgment than almost any other person. And he also talks more about money than almost any other subject. And so he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We think that a person has arrived, that they are successful when they amass a whole lot of stuff. You see somebody who lives in a very affluent neighbor, neighborhood, who drives an expensive car, who takes expensive vacations, who has a wonderful stock portfolio, and we say that that person is what? Successful. Because that's how we judge success. And oftentimes, that's how we judge the value of a person, is on how much they have managed to amass. And Jesus says, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We think the one who dies with the most toys wins. Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how many toys you have, you're still going to die. And so he told them a parable, verse 16 saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus' words are shocking, aren't they? This is not Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus being perfectly honest and blunt. A number of things about this little parable that Jesus tells that I think are worth noting. Look at verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. This, of course, was an agrarian culture. This was not an industrialized culture. People lived off the land. So this was an image that was familiar to them. And Jesus says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. The emphasis is on what? The land. What produces plentifully? The land. Now, everybody there knew. Anybody that has ever known a farmer knows that farmers have to work very hard to make the land produce. I had parishioners uh, in Beaufort who were tomato farmers. They had big tomato farms, big tomato industry, sold all over the country. But let me tell you something. They were the hardest working people I knew. They worked hard to make the land produce. And they were successful at it. 
So everybody knows, if you know a farmer, that they work very hard in order to make the land produce plentifully. So why does Jesus put the emphasis on the land and not on the man's hard work? Because it doesn't matter how hard you work if you're a farmer. If nature does not cooperate, you're still going to be in very bad shape. Jesus was saying, look, this man's land produced plentifully. Of course he worked hard. Of course he got up early in the morning, went to bed late. Yes, he tended everything that needed to be tended to. But God could very well have allowed a blight to come on his, on his crops. God could have sent locusts or some other kind of pestilence that would have devoured them. He could have sent excess rain or he could have withheld the rain and there could have been a drought. Any number of things could have happened that would have made it impossible for this man to have been successful in producing a good crop. In the final analysis, Jesus is saying, it's not so much the efforts of the man as it is what? The grace and mercy of God. And the same is true in our lives as well. That's the first thing to notice. Here's the second thing, verse 17. And because the land of the rich man produced plentifully, the rich man said to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store my grain and my goods. What's it all about? It's about storing up. Now, in this particular instance, he's storing up for what? The proverbial rainy day. I've got to store up because you never know. Now, there is something important about saving, being prepared, and not being a spendthrift. This is what this man is doing. But he's not doing it just in the event of a rainy day. He is doing it so that he can what? Have what we call the good life. And what is the good life? The good life is the ability to do whatever you want, to work as hard as you can so that eventually you reach a point where you don't have to work anymore. Isn't that what we think of the good life? Let's be honest. That, that's the good life. I'm working now. I'm working my tail off so that I can eventually reach a point where I don't have to work anymore and I can do what I want. And he said to them, to himself, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say to himself. He says to his soul. That part of ourselves, which is eternal, he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. There's the word. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. It's interesting to note that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said we are never to call somebody a fool. If we are, we're subject to what? Hellfire. But here Jesus said this man was a fool. Let me tell you something. When God calls somebody a fool, you need to sit up and take notice. Why was this man a fool? Because he'd given all this thought, all of this concern for his earthly subsistence and he'd given no thought to his eternal soul. And that night, the one thing he had no control over was going to be required of him, his life. And how much of these ample goods did he leave behind? I'll tell you, he left them all behind. See, we think if we have enough stuff, we'll be content. We'll be safe. 
will be protected. But I want you to understand, this life is not all there is. The Scripture says it is appointed man once to die, and then there's what? Judgment. It's appointed man once to die, and then there's judgment. So wealth, you see, gives you a false sense of security. And the only security you're going to find in this life or in the life to come is to be found where? In the one who never dies, who died and rose again, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So let me ask the question, what is the idol in your life? What are you putting your trust in? Where's your confidence resting right now? What are you doing with all your stuff? And the man went away filled with sorrow, and Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Which is why I think Peter says what he does next. Jesus was sorry to see this young man go. Jesus was telling him what he needed. He wanted to know. He asked an honest question. Jesus gave him an honest answer. What must I do? Here's what you must do. Tear the idol from its throne that God may take his rightful place. And the man couldn't do it, and he went away because he had great wealth. So Jesus said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you, or, or about your body, what you will put on. Don't worry about those things. Now at this point, as the young man leaves, I think Peter looked at Jesus, saw that he was sort of down in the dumps. And so Peter tried to pick up the Lord's spirits. At least that's the way I read this. Because Peter says, well, look, Lord, there's still us. Still got us. And, and we have what? We have left everything and followed you. Cheer up, Lord. It's, it's not as bad as you think. I mean, you lost him, and he's pretty impressive, and I'm, I'm not as impressive, but we're still here. And he doesn't only say we're still here. He says what? We have given up everything to follow you. And it would have been great if he had just stopped there. But you know Peter. Peter's afflicted with foot and mouth disease. And he goes on to say, so what will there be for us? See, Peter really was afflicted with the same problem as this young man. The young man had the possessions. Peter wanted them. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, give everything you have. Peter says, that's what we've done. We've given up everything. What will there be for us? Well, a couple of points. Disciples, question provokes something with Jesus. First of all, they ask the question, who can be saved? This young man was so impressive to them. If he couldn't be saved, who could be saved? And Jesus, this is Jesus' very point. Jesus' point is that no one can be saved in and of their own efforts. He says, with man it's impossible, with God it is possible. And what's in it for you if you do give up everything? You surrender your life for the sake of Christ? Jesus says, actually, there's quite a lot in it for you. What has he said? There will be rewards in heaven. Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, 
judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is making it very clear. Nothing that you lose in this life will not be more than compensated for in the life of the world to come. See, the problem is we still view this life. We may say that we believe in the life of the world to come, but if you're living as though this life is all there is, you probably don't. That's what Jesus was saying. If you say you believe in the life of the world to come, but you're living as though this life is all there is, you probably don't believe in the life of the world to come. If you were to lose everything today, if you were to discover that your stock portfolio is worthless, you were bankrupt, you had to sell your house, your car, move out of your neighborhood, if everything material was gone, could you still find joy in life? I'm not asking about happiness, but could you still be joyful in life? If you experienced everything that Job experienced, the loss of your family, your friends, your property, could you still find joy in your life? If you had Jesus Christ, would that be treasure enough? Horatio Spafford was a remarkable man. He was a very affluent businessman in Chicago in the latter part of the 19th century. He owned an enormous amount of property, but his business was very trying. It stressed him out, and he decided that living in America's gilded age and the industrial age was not a particularly good thing for his family. And so what Horatio Spafford decided to do was to sell his business interests, and he had a lot of uh, expendable cash at that point, sell his business interests, and then he was going to move his entire family to England, and they were going to live out in the countryside. A simpler life. They were going to relax a little bit. Spafford had worked so hard for all those years, and he wanted to get to the point where he could relax. And so he uh, took his family to New York. They were getting ready to get on a ship, sail across the Atlantic for England, and a wire came in that the Great Chicago Fire had taken place, and so much of his waterfront property had been absolutely destroyed just before the sale. And so he put his wife and his two daughters on the ship, sent them across uh, to the uh, other side of the, the pond, as it were, and he went back to Chicago to close up business matters. When he got back to Chicago, there was a Western Union telegram waiting for him. In a freak accident, in a fog, the ship that his wife and daughters were sailing on had collided with another ship. And his wife sent the telegram, daughter's lost, I alone am saved. Horatio Spafford was absolutely devastated. He got back to New York as quickly as possible, took another ship so that he could meet his wife in England. And when he reached the point, he stayed below decks the entire journey, when he finally reached the point where the ship had collided with his wife's ship. He asked the captain if he could come up on deck. The captain told them they were at that point. He came up on deck. 
and he looked out over that choppy surf, that unforgiving sea that had robbed him of his two precious daughters. And with a piece of paper in his hand, he wrote out the words to what would become one of the great hymns of the church. It goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my lowly estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. O oh, Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Can you say that? If everything was taken away, could you say, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, it is well, it is well with my soul. It would take some time for the disciples to get there, but eventually they did. And these men learned the poverty of riches and the riches of poverty when you give up everything for Jesus Christ, when you surrender it all and then suddenly discover you're given everything that your heart desires. May God grant us the grace to let go of the stuff in our lives and to begin to live not long, no longer for this life, but for the life and the world to come. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this rich young man. He's a tragic figure, but he is an example for us. We are, every single one of us, the preacher included, too much attached to the things of this world. The question is not, do we have wealth? The question is, do our things, our wealth, do these things have us? And so often, Lord, they do. They control us. We are fearful of losing them. We care for our bodies. We care for our homes, but we neglect our souls. Lord, grant us the grace to do better than this rich young ruler. What must we do to inherit eternal life? Trust in you. Surrender it all. Give it all to you that you may give us, empty hands now, the riches of everlasting life. We ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.